0: As we've progressed through the COVID pandemic, long-standing issues in the food system have become highlighted. Low-wage labour, often from developing countries, is essential for planting and harvest of some crops and further up the chain in processing. We've seen issues emerge that have disrupted the flow of food along the chain. In this episode, I talked to Evan Fraser, the director of the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph, to get his perspective on our dependence on low-wage, tenuous labour in the food system. My name is Mike Von Masso, and this is the Food Focus podcast. One of the challenges in COVID is recording remotely. We do the best we can on sound quality. Evan was at the cottage on Georgian Bay for his recording. While Max will try and clean things up, you may hear some breaks in the recording, his neighbor's lawnmower, or even the sound of waves hitting the shore. I apologize for the distractions, but believe the content of our conversation is worth it. Before I turn to the conversation, I want to say thanks for listening. Our audience continues to grow. Tell someone about the podcast. If you enjoy it, give us a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find us. Now, without further delay, here's my conversation with Evan on Labour in the Food System. Well, Evan, I've been looking forward to this discussion uh, with you ever ever since we booked it. So thank you for taking the time. No, my pleasure, Mike. Nice to chat. So, Evan, one of the things that I think has become apparent as we've uh, sort of muddled our way through the pandemic is how critically important labor is at all stages of our food supply chain. And much of it is built on sort of low-cost labor. How did we get here? Well, I mean, to
1: start at the highest level, for me, one of the things I will take away from the pandemic is the irony it is exposed around labor and the irony is and it's sort of a tragic irony i guess it's the irony that some of the people we depend on most for our food system to function are the least well paid are amongst uh, experienced very insecure job environments so they're temporary casual part-time no benefits generally and um often a very precarious immigration status uh in that they're you know um, sometimes undocumented migrant workers, sometimes people here, more often in Canada anyways, people on uh, temporary agricultural work visas with no pathway to citizenship or anything like that. And, uh, and I think that, uh, that we have to explore the uncomfortable truth that, to a very large extent, our food systems depend on, on this very precarious form of labor. And, uh, and there's a lot, of, a lot of problems with it that have been brought right to the surface, um, in terms of workers being exposed to dangerous conditions, vis-a-vis the virus, uh, farmers scrambling to try to make sure that the labor comes in, and it is exposed to a real a real flaw or a real weakness in our food system. So that's that's my sort of conclusion. You asked the question, how did we get here? And I I, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts as much as as much as mine. I mean, why don't I advance a hypothesis, and you 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 would you Agree or disagree or add nuance. Um, my feeling is that we have prioritized, for all the right reasons, a very affordable food system for so long um, that we've brought margins down, we've brought prices down, uh, and one of the negative consequences of that process has been to squeeze labor into um, re- really fairly poorly paid work. And um, you know, consumers benefit because we enjoy low-priced food but, um, but the people who are actually working on the food system, whether they're on the meatpacking plant floor or stocking shelves at a grocery store or picking strawberries in the farm, uh typically don't get paid very much
0: It's interesting i I would agree that i I would have said the same thing that is our our drive to to deliver cheap, safe food has sort of driven a lot of the margin out and as as uh, as farms have grown. Uh, areas where automation has become more difficult which is uh, which or not more difficult but areas in which automation is difficult uh, have created these spots where we need we need these cheap this cheap labor yeah the other thing i think that's compounded it is probably is probably prosperity in the west is uh, <laughs> as standards of living have incre uh, have improved it's been tough to find people who are willing to do what is often unpleasant work
1: yeah no i agree and that that point cuts home very personally so i i mean my grandfather in niagara was a was a horticulture produce farmer strawberries melons sweet corn that kind of thing and i spent a large amount of my summers as a kid on that farm and then in my 20s as grandpa and my grandmother were were you know thinking of retiring and passing it along and there was no obvious farm succession plan my wife and I—I I was newly married at the time—were offered the farm, and we made a very deliberate decision to say no, for the simple reason. And I made this as a joke. I've said this hundreds of times to, in interviews and in in talks and whatnot. That I you know, decided that it was easier and more remunerative to talk and write about farming than it was to actually try to produce vegetables in Niagara. And um, I, I said that I've said that so many times in a very flippant way, but this year it actually seems a, a much more um, significant statement that it is easier to talk and write about farming than it is to actually make a go of it, of being a farmer. And, uh, and so we've, we've got the situation where, where there is a lack of, of labor in our, in our markets that, that can and is willing to do that work. And I'm including myself.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you, you and I both spend a lot of time talking about farming and, in fact, the entire food system, because this isn't unique to picking vegetables in Niagara or picking tomatoes in in Leamington or picking apples in the Okanagan Valley. It's, it's also about, uh, as we've discovered and you said earlier, it's also about processing food, yeah. uh, you know, where we've seen sort of lots of people coming close together it's not just in the fields but it's in the beef processing plants and things like that where where we've had trouble automating processes.
1: Yeah, and I think your your point there is really a, it was really a, a good one in that we see regardless of where in the food chain we're talking about where automation has been hard to get established we see the same patterns which is generally poorly remunerated generally Temporary part-time, you know, not the sort of you know full-time unionized ben- job with benefit type thing that that might expect. And often, often a, strain, a strong racialized component to it, where they're are either people from other countries coming to Canada on a temporary basis, or they're you know, in the case of the beef packing plant, it, it's not an accident that it was mostly a Filipino community that was that was affected by um, by some of the closers uh, er- earlier in the lockdown. And, and so there's strong there's strong racial components to this as well which I think I think we can't be silent on we shouldn't be silent on ever but especially in this you know day and age in this year of 2020 we, we have to acknowledge openly I think that there are
0: racial components to this as well I agree with you hundred percent so that that raises the question then can we get out of this cycle are, are what do we need to do different in this food system is it a matter of recognizing that food costs have to go up so that we can build margin not only for workers but for for farmers and and also i mean all across the value chain. It's, to, to me, it's amazing that while there are people who make money in the food business, there are lots of businesses that are ve- relatively low margin, not least restaurants, which also tend to have... It's
1: the same sort of problems emerging.
0: <laughs> particularly in the back of house where, yeah. where jobs are poorly paid. Uh, you know, A friend of mine once said that uh, he hadn't noticed it as a restaurant manager, but he had an epiphany a few years ago when when a regular guest said... He wasn't coming back anymore, and my friend said, "Why?" And he said, "Look at your staff. The servers are all white. Yeah. The busser's and dishwashers are all people of color. Yeah. And and you sort of we have built these to a significant degree unconsciously these structures that are often divided by race."
1: Well, this is. I'm glad you said that because I, I first of all I don't want to say that this was a there were individual farmers or. Restauranters or meat processing plant managers, you know, that were racist. This is the distinction between racism, I think, and structural racism, where we create these structures, where these patterns get repeated again and again that have strong racial components to them. And if 2020 has given us anything, maybe it's caused, caused us to pause enough and recognize that these issues are present and are present in all sorts of places that we were
0: unconsciously unaware of, I think, up until this com- this, con- this kind of conversation. I started that on the line of saying, okay, we, we see this across the board, across the food system. Do we need to raise prices across the board to create the opportunity to be more profitable? We do spend a relatively low proportion of our income on food, is one argument that doesn't deal with the people at the low end uh, Uh, of the income spectrum who for whom that might cause some grief in in terms of food security but or do we need to find ways to automate these these systems to to deliver products effectively without these exploitive jobs
1: on one hand yeah i think canadians on average need to probably be paying a bit more of their percentage in terms of a percentage of their income on food and I I haven't looked at the statistics for a few years. You probably know them better than me, but my understanding is Canadians pay a little less than 10% of their income on food. Europeans, it's more like 12 thirteen or 14%. So maybe if we move to more of a European model where we're paying slightly higher margins, that would create enough breathing space, for lack of a better word, um, in the food system to pay workers at all stages in the food chain more. But But the flip side of that argument is that we would have... Food insecurity amongst low-income Canadians that are already struggling to afford food, and we have to acknowledge that we have about four million Canadians who are food insecure. Pre-pandemic, we had about four million Canadians who were food insecure. So that's unacceptably high levels of people who can't afford to buy food, anyways. So, so that's a problem. So, raising food prices might help one problem, but might create another problem. So then we shift to automation, and yeah, uh, European meatpacking plants typically are smaller, more decentralized, uh, and more heavily automated. They also operate at a smaller economy of scale and are slightly more expensive to run. So again, this maybe we could automate some of our processes, reduce those kind of jobs. And actually, here we have, we have a good news story in a sense that we know that the ag food sector in general is, a, is an employment generator for Canada, uh, has been identified by the federal government as a, as a way of growing the economy and creating good quality jobs for, for young Canadians. There's a huge push that both of us are involved in in trying to recruit students into the field and get them started on exciting careers. So there is a very strong possibility that we could use technology not to replace jobs, but to change jobs from poorly compensated to better remunerated. Better and here's a great example. I was on a, not too long ago, I was on stage at the Royal Bank of Canada about the future of work on a panel about the future of work, and there's a, the head vintner for Peller Estates winery was um, was present, and she was showing the audience how she could turn wind machines on and off and irrigation on and off using her smartphone and was talking about all the automation. But then she said something very revealing. She said, while they reduced the number of laborers producing grapes, they've increased their total payroll because they're actually employing more front-of-desk people, more data managers, more sommeliers, more marketers, more robotics tech engineers, and their total payroll had increased. So this was a, a success story, right? We'd upskilled the system. But the, the downside of that or the flip side of this you know, this automation and high technology argument is the people who are largely from Latin America and the Caribbean who depend on jobs, even poorly paid hand labor jobs in Canada as a vital source of their livelihoods. And 60,000 people come to Canada every year to pick our strawberries and prune our apple orchards. And those are fa- the people. Those people belong to families who depend on these these jobs in Canada for their family back in Central Latin America or the Caribbean for their livelihoods. And this raises the the issue of remittances. And remittances is money earned by family members in a perhaps a wealthy country that's then sent home to support a family in a poorer part of the world. And agriculture, construction, and domestic industries represent an enormous supply of remittances. And it's hundreds of billions of dollars a year globally are remitted back to families. And it's actually more significant uh, economic driver than almost any other activity in much of the developing world. So if by automating and upskilling in Canada, we create all these great jobs for Canadian kids, we have to acknowledge that we are essentially creating worse unemployment in places like Latin America and the Caribbean and turning the tap off on this supply of remittances. So every way I think to tackle this problem I think of I can think of a strategy, but then I think of really serious trade offs associated with that strategy. And and this is where I I get feeling very frustrated or even a little depressed about how to how to imagine moving forward on this file
0: there's such explicit trade offs that that as you say it's really tough to come up with the perfect solution you know there's you're robbing peter to pay paul in many of these instances and you know we're hearing well these temporary workers come in for a little bit one of the problems we have is that many of these jobs are are very seasonal although we do have temporary foreign workers in places like meat packing plants and hotels and things like that which aren't especially seasonal, some hotels are, and saying, well, if we don't have these spots in, or people in Canada who are willing to do these jobs, should these people have an opportunity to come here, which doesn't shut off the tap for remittances, those that want to settle and have a path to permanent residency or, or to citizenship.
1: So uh, for me, when you see these explicit trade-offs from one strategy or another, maybe then that's a signal that there's a role for policy. And if you say, okay, well, we need – for both the workers' purposes as well as the industry's purposes, we need a supply of foreign workers. But we don't think this is a really good long-term strategy. Can we figure out strategies to wean ourselves off of foreign workers over a period of time – while ensuring very, very rigorous workplace standards, decent wages, and as you just said, a pathway to citizenship for those people who come to Canada every year and have done so for 20 years and, and would actually really like to stay and are very valuable members of our community.
0: And they aren't just sort of mindless muscle that I think the, many of these people have been coming regularly for 25 years and know what they're doing. And they are, they are on the same farm. I know one farmer who goes and visits his temporary foreign workers in Honduras every winter because they've really become sort of part of the family. Now, that that doesn't speak to maybe what they're getting paid, but these aren't all sort of horrific conditions that, you know, not all the farms are bad, but but, but they aren't getting paid a, a bunch. And there is the seasonal component, which often compounds it. But we hear these people saying, well, you know, we have all these unemployment employed people here in the country. Now we have all of these students who are looking for work. We should just put them all on farms and, and keep the jobs in Canada. That, that's not as easy as it sounds, because these aren't just, like I said, mindless muscle. There are people who know what they're doing. They've come for years. They bring new people with them and, and sort of train them as part of the team. Well, there's,
1: there's two, two really important points. I, th- I love what you just said, and I think there's two points that I'd, I'd simply like to reinforce. First of all, this isn't unskilled labor that's coming to Canada. Uh, we get it cheap because of the inter- way the international economy works and the food market works, but it is highly skilled labor. And I mean, I, you know, as I reflected earlier in our conversation, I, I grew up on a strawberry farm. I was a terrible strawberry picker for years. It took a lot of work
0: <laughs> to become a decent strawberry I hated strawberry going strawberry picking with my mom when I was a kid.
1: Exactly. It's a terrible job. But a good strawberry picker is extremely valuable to a farmer. And I, early in the lockdown, when we were talking about these things, you know, on a, on a weekly basis, daily basis, I was chatting with a farmer who said, the difference between a skilled agricultural laborer and like an 18-year-old who has never worked on a farm is the difference between making a profit and, and, and going bankrupt in a year. I mean, that's the kind of, that's the way that farms work. They're that narrow margins. And so I think it's naive to think we could just take unemployed Canadian youth and simply have them effective agricultural workers. We could set that as a goal as a society, that, but there, there's a policy issue, right? If we wanted to establish training and mentoring programs to ensure that Canadian youth had opportunities on Canadian farms, we could build that culture up again. But it wouldn't happen overnight. It would take a significant investment of effort. And it would probably have to be more than minimum wage in order to induce people to do it. And I just reflect on my, my, my children. We've got both got kids that are in that demographic that you know, many people were saying, well, why don't they just work on farms? And my, my son's trained as a lifeguard. He's a very good lifeguard. He's never picked a strawberry before. So why would we think that someone trained as a lifeguard could suddenly be an efficient strawberry picker? I mean, it's just, it's just the skill set's not there. So I think I think that that one is 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 so important to remind ourselves. It's a little I don't know. Almost feels a little arrogant to think we could just dump a bunch of unemployed Canadians on a farm, and it suddenly suddenly
0: everyone would win. Not only lose a lot of productivity, but there there probably be some health and safety risk as well. Oh, I wasn't even thinking of that. Yeah, I totally agreed. <laughs> you know, it's uh, and so the last point I wanted to make uh, before we wrap this up, and I, I've loved this conversation, is. This isn't just sort of an issue of, of low paid workers and seasonal work what what this has highlighted too is how dependent our system is on on these workers and and really it exposes ourselves to risk a little bit as you know as you know we saw we, we were fortunate the losses in terms of lost Picking opportunity were were significant, but not catastrophic. You know, we saw some some asparagus for some farmers not get picked here in Ontario. I know there are some concerns in the Okanagan uh, around cherries and and uh, and other fruit. Uh, Blueberries on it, the west coast are have they're having trouble getting those out. What I what I've heard from some. Yeah, and so so we are seeing some of these problems. We've really exposed our food system has been exposed for having this vulnerability.
1: Yeah. uh, It's it's just so interesting. I mean, on one hand, we've had these conversations, the two of us, over the the last five months on a semi-regular basis. Uh, At times, I have been absolutely terrified that our food system was about to literally cease functioning in any meaningful way. But it hasn't. And it has been remarkably resilient. And so I would, you know, thankfully, my worst nightmares from March were not fulfilled. And the system has performed remarkably well in terms of providing Canadians fairly regular, predictable produce with very few big gaps in the supermarkets, except for that first two-week period, at essentially the same price. I mean, with relatively little food price inflation. Now, there are some food categories that the um, latest Stats Canada results suggest that there are some foods that are more expensive, especially beef and tomatoes. But we've, we've done remarkably well. And yet there are these these extremely serious issues like labor that I think we as a community, and I mean that as a, like an ag food community and, and as a country, need to come together around and think, is there a way that we can, one, reduce our exposure to foreign labor in a way that helps preserve the employment opportunities for people from Latin America and Caribbean who depend on these Latin employment opportunities? That's the first thing I'd say. The second one would be, are there ways of strategically investing in technology to automate and help pivot our food system out of a you know, a a labor dependent, you know, hand labor dependent model to one where we can use technology to do more of these jobs that, you know, frankly, you know, aren't very pleasant to do, you know, picking strawberries and harvesting asparagus. And is there a play there? And then third, is there there an argument now for repatriating food production? And uh, Canada, as both of us know, is a net food exporter. But there are some key categories of food where we're not net food exporters, where especially the produce where we need to be, um, where we, we could be much, much more um, resilient. And, and I think maybe there's a real strong case for, for, for repatriating uh, fruit and vegetable production to within Canada.
0: And that might get back to a technological solution, frankly, because part of our issue in Canada is seasonality. It is difficult to grow broccoli in February in most parts of Canada.
1: Yeah, so can we, can we get double down, use this as an incentive for a moment to double down big into that controlled environment, vertical farming, greenhouse kind of technology where where fruit and vegetable production to a certain extent moves inside and uses technology to do things. And and we've seen remarkable successes. We now have these um, these what they're called ever-bearing strawberry plants that basically produce strawberries eight months a year. Those are produced down in in uh, in Niagara and um, up on, on on Lake Huron. You know, can we invest in those sort of technologies and really become much more food sovereign as a country and and, and reduce our dependency on, on things like labor.
0: Are those technologies less labor-intensive or, or are we smoothing the demand for labor which may make it easier to, uh, bec- because they produce year-round, uh, which may make it easier to attract and retain people to do it? Okay, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I don't think we're not, none of
1: this conversation should be seen as reducing labor. Again, i come back to my a point we chatted about, Few minutes ago, where, where agriculture is seen as a as a job creator, and there's you know we you know you and I both work at the University of Guelph. We're very proud of the fact that uh, there's four jobs for every graduate. That um, the federal government has identified ag as a as a way of creating jobs. Um, that person, that vintner from Peller State I talked about, said you know they've reduced labor, but they've increased payroll. It's a change of jobs uh, to better jobs, more year-round jobs but jobs that would offer more remuneration and benefit packages and things like that. And I think properly deployed, cutting-edge digital technologies like we see in the greenhouse industry can help upskill, for lack of a better word, the the industry and create better jobs. Hopefully, we can do that in a way that has a set of policies around it so that we can be uh, respectful of the people and the families that currently depend on coming to Canada for for low-paid agricultural jobs, um, so as not to turn the taps off on on that style that source of livelihoods for them. Hopefully, we can do it in a way that doesn't, you know, that increases margins so that. Uh, for, People get better paid within the sector, but doesn't increase the cost of food outside of the sector, for which creates a food which, which would create a food insecurity problem for low-income Canadians. It's that sort of portfolio of strategies: some technology, some policy, some investment, uh, some labor that I think we need to be thinking about, and we need to take a whole a whole systems approach when we think about these issues to try to mitigate those trade-offs that we started our conversation on.
0: I, I couldn't agree more. And, and what an excellent place to, to, to wrap up is this isn't going to go away in, in the short run, but I think there's lots of opportunity to think more creatively and holistically about, about how we improve the food system generally and improve predictability without, without having sort of this, this tenuous, low-paid labor that, that, has, that has become sort of a, a shaky foundation for many parts of the food system.
1: Yeah, that's something that's a model or what you just said, Mike, is is a vision I could I could get behind in a big way.
0: Well, thanks very much, Evan. As always, I enjoy our conversation. And uh, every time we have a conversation, I learn something. So thank you very much for taking the time. As we wrap up this episode, I just wanted to take a minute to uh, say thanks to Max Graham for making us sound great. Uh, We get to have the interesting conversations and Max does the hard work of of cleaning it up. Quick thanks to Zach von Massow for the original music that we use to transition. I also wanted to take a minute to remind you of uh, the foodfocusguelph.ca website. You go check out our blog, which gets updated at least once weekly with issues Uh, related to food just like the podcast and gives you a place that you can get a hold of us as well if you want to make suggestions for episodes of the podcast you have questions uh, we're open to any of it and one more reminder that uh, if you enjoy the podcast uh, submitting a review wherever you get your podcast helps others find us as well so thanks for listening hope you enjoyed it uh, and stay in touch